Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle, and every week I try and bring you insights from players, coaches, parents, and experts who are ingrained in the world of high-level tennis. This week, I chat to the world-renowned Carlos Ramos, the former gold badge umpire who is now working as a tournament referee. We chat about what life was like as an umpire on the road for over 30 years, umpiring all four slam finals and the Olympic finals. We also get into the umpire code of conduct, keeping focused in long matches, what he learned in umpiring over 5,000 matches. And I ask him, with all his experience watching the greats play, could he coach at tour level? Also, if you're an Irish listener, here's a random fact he told me. The first pro match Carlos ever umpired was for no other than former Irish number one, who had a Davis Cup record only Rafa surpassed a few years ago, the legendary Owen Casey. And before we get started with Carlos, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, ASICS, who make my favorite and many pros and recreational players favorite tennis shoes. I'm personally a big solution fan, but they have the popular resolutions, which I think are a great choice if you're a coach as they're so comfortable and light. And if you're covering the court like Novak, the court FF3 Novak designed with the help of the man himself is the shoe for you. And finally, the third special edition Sabre of the year is now live. It's the London version and it's available in our online store. You can check it out at functionaltennis.com. Okay, here's Carlos. Carlos, welcome. I could say welcome back to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Uh, good, thanks, Fabio. Yeah, it is welcome back. Yeah, uh, all yeah. good. Thank you. After a really good uh, week of cycling in the mountains in the French Alps, so feeling really good. Oh, very nice. Are you big? I didn't know you big into cycling. Uh, last couple of years, um, nice. when I see the people that were there um, last ten days, I'm not good at into cycling, but uh, uh, I'm not good at it. But uh, I'm trying. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 hard work to be a good cycler. And. How many how many kilometers were you doing a day? Uh, I did um, the the longest I did there was uh, 110 and uh, 2,400 meters uh, elevation. So that's uh, that's quite a lot for a beginner. Yeah, it is. I, my, my brother's kind of big into cycling. I see the amount of work he puts in every day, and you know every every sport you have to put in a lot of work. But for from a recreational level, the cycling you have to put in a lot of tough work. The sessions are much tougher than tennis sessions at the recreational level. Yeah, they're long. Yeah, they're long and and, and hard. Yes, especially I guess if you if you go climbing, yeah, climbing the mountains yeah. is, uh, is is hard, but it's it's really nice. And will you be getting yourself like one of those uh, the turbo trainers at home? Are you going to get into it? Uh, not for the moment, but maybe, maybe I try and cycle during winter as well, but, okay, nice. uh, not always easy, but, uh, I haven't bought one of those yet. You get, you get there. So, okay. We actually re recorded a few weeks ago, about a month, I think a month, three weeks ago, but, uh, we've had to re-record. So great to have you back. And, uh, yeah. So first of all, tell us what have you been up to the past few weeks you were you were sorry you were cycling last week were you doing a bit of work still you're officially retired as a tour umpire yes i retired as a chair umpire but i'm continuing as a referee and supervisor so um i did a little bit of that and then uh, the last 10 days i was in the mountains so um okay nice emptying my mind a little bit and doing other things and that, that was really nice 
Nice. And uh, I d- did when I originally got you on the week before I asked our followers on Instagram and listeners to send in some questions and they were all very topical questions. They're all Serena. I, you, you know what they are. People know what they are. They're what the press likes to write about. But we did have a discussion the last time about what you can say and what you can't say. And I wanted to start this conversation with that uh, so people understand that you have a certain code of conduct. The players have a code of conduct and you sort of have to respect that. So maybe you can tell us exactly what is the your code of conduct? Yeah, we have a very uh, strict code of conduct for the officials that has um, evolved a lot in the last 10 years. It has become a lot more um, uh, technical and uh, and uh, I, it's, I'm sure it's been rewritten by lawyers now and before it was all, all done by written by officials and now it's all written by lawyers and it's become, I don't know, 20 pages instead of one. Um, but it's, um, it's a very... Um, very strict code of conduct, but basically, to cut a long, a long story short, we cannot talk about any specific matches or any specific players. Um, so, as you said, you use the right words. You know, I cannot talk about it. It's not that I don't want to talk about it because I, I thought I think you know me a little bit now, and I, I like to talk. Um, and uh, but it's just that we we cannot talk about specific matches and specific players. Uh, what can you talk about? Everything else, you know the. Rules, the the you know whatever, uh, our life of, of a tennis official, why we get into it, whatever, whatever you you uh, whatever you think of, but also uh, you I mean you can always uh, we can always try and answer some questions without talking about specific players and specific um, uh, matches. So um, uh, just yeah. send in some good questions, and I'll I'll do my best. Uh, thanks. Uh, so something I have interested in is concentration levels and um, you're not like you know players are up and down they have to concentrate as well but you have to be on your game for every single point like players can have a bad game two or three and they can come back and they can deal with having bad concentration but you one bad mistake from you up in the chair can absolutely destroy a match or can turn a player against you uh, how do you maintain focus and concentration over, let's say you've, you've worked at all the slams, you've done the final of all the slams. How do you maintain such a high level of concentration and focus? Yeah, a, a lack of concentration, a slight lack of concentration, as you said, can destroy a match and it has destroyed matches of all of us, including, including me for sure. Um, it's, it's a lot about, uh, I played a little bit of tennis. I try and umpire the match as I'm as, I, as if I was playing the match and try and concentrate uh, before the start of each point. And uh, in the players, if you're serving, you tell yourself where you're going, or you ask yourself where you're going to serve and uh, and what you want to do with it. You know, if the return comes to your forehand or to the backhand, and uh, and we, with us, uh, it's a little bit the same. You know, think about think, remind yourself where you are and uh, and uh, the stage of the match and what you want to do and. Uh, but it's like it's. Um, I'm a big believer in living in the present, uh, and it's really about living in the present, and and especially not letting. Let's say you just had a difficult situation that, uh, to put it even in a more difficult for us, more difficult for us, uh, difficult situation that I did not handle well. Uh, it's important to before the next point to um, to reset and uh, just think about the next point, not. The situation that you did not handle well. If you do that, then the chances are that um, if you get a close call, you will, or you have a much bigger chance of making a mistake. 
So it's uh, keeping concentration, keeping your focus is really key. I think players could take that advice. Yeah, but uh, I think the players are they're, they're good at uh, keeping their focus most of the time. You know, some players are they keep their focus all the time. Some other players find it more difficult for sure. And I think it's the same with us. Are you ever up in the chair and go, and you see a match and you see a player doing something wrong? You have the best seat in the house there. You know exactly what's going on. And you're thinking to yourself, if only if they could, if they did this, you know, you want to give, you ever want to give the player advice? I know you can't, but just say, oh, he just needs to hit backhand here. Did that ever enter your mind? Uh, not really, but uh, you said it's uh, it's the best seat in the house. It, it gets a little hot sometimes, but uh, but it's yeah, it's a really good seat. Sometimes I I told myself, you know, I'm, really am I am I even getting paid to do this? Because you look to your right and you have a great player. You look to your left, you have a great player, great uh, mat, great stadium, and uh, the thing that you really love to do, and uh, and you're even getting paid to to do it. So uh, it's great. But um, uh, yeah, it it. Um, uh, what did, what did I want to say? Um, um, remind me what 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 you were saying before. Um, oh, now I give an advice to the players. Yes, exactly. Um, not really. Um, I I'm guilty of many times uh, uh, looking at the players, you know, at their technique, their uh, their feet, you know, where they hit the ball exactly. Looking at it a little bit too much, and then I need to remind myself to um, to watch the ball. It's actually what I'm there for. To watch the ball and stop watching the technique. Uh, but um, we had many years ago at the tournament in Spain a, um, a lower lower tier tournament where we had um, uh, officials that were uh, only national officials, not very experienced. Certainly not with international fish, uh, international ex- uh, experience. And um, uh, there was this guy who was also a coach, was umpiring a match, and the player was getting really pissed off with him. And uh, and uh, at one point, the player said, you know, come on, man, you're so bad. How could you miss that? And uh, this umpire slash uh, coach said, I'm bad, you're bad. Each time he serves to your back and you put it into the net. <laughs> <laughs> we had this many, but it doesn't happen very often. And, uh, and certainly it's something that I, I don't do enough. That's brilliant. Uh, so you you officiated the four slam finals. Only one or two people to do that. Uh, I think it's uh, the men's singles uh, finals. We we have one official that um, at least one that did the women's all all women's singles finals. And I think now for the men's singles finals, I think it's two of us. I think I'm still the only one who did all the men's singles finals and the the Olympics uh, single men's singles final. So you have the golden slam. I did the one at Wimbledon, um, uh, Murray Federer. Uh, so yeah, that was uh, that's it's special. But uh, again, you know, uh, what was it like seeing Wimbledon in the different colours? It was the first day was very strange actually. Uh, uh, but then, uh, funnily enough, we we got used to it. Very, I, at, at least me, I, I got used to it very quickly. Um, and almost uh, when we. In the next year, when we went back to Wimbledon and we saw it with the Wimbledon colors, was a little bit strange to see it with the Wimbledon colors. And uh, the great thing as well with um, the Olympics at Wimbledon was that we had um, uh, the officials, we had access to places we never have access to okay. during during the championships. And uh, so we sat in watching matches, we sat in places. Or I, I watched matches from the Royal Box, for instance. Uh, wow. And so that never happened. So, uh, so uh, that 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 was quite special, and uh, but it was 
it was really a great experience to have the Olympics uh, played uh, at Wimbledon. And at a slam like Wimbledon's, you say you'd more access normally, let's say Wimbledon starting very soon. And yeah. what sort of access do you have as an umpire? Well, we have access to, you know, it's a lot of us, you know, it's at a slam, as you know, it's a lot of people, uh, it's not only a lot of, uh, of, of, of officials, but officials, we have maybe about 400 people, even more, I guess. Um, when you when you have all all roles included, you know, line umpires, uh, chair umpires, then the evaluators, and it's it's even more more than four hundred. So you really need to to be when you when you run a tournament like that, you really need to be strict where you let people in and, and not. Uh, it's the same with media. I guess you have yeah. a lot of I don't know how many media we have at the at, at the, usually at the Grand Slam, but it's hundreds of people. Uh, so we basically have access to the areas that we need to go to 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 work. Um, we certainly, when we need to watch a match, there's we have some seats uh, for us uh, to be there as evaluators on on every court. Um, at some of the slams, uh, including Wimbledon, we have some uh, umpire seats on uh, on the big courts as well, when, when, where we can go and watch the matches, um, not to work during during a, you know, in between matches, for instance, or a day off. We can go and watch some matches. We have some seats on center court, on down number one court. Uh, but usually, you know, you have access to the places you need to go to for work, uh, nothing else. I, I do. It's kind of, yeah. You, so you've your own area. The media has its own area and the players have its own area. I've the past few years have been lucky. I've gone with a player and you get access to the player areas, get to meet players, coach them. For me, it's very good. It helps me get guests on the show, helps me build relationships within the tennis world. But this year, nobody wants to bring me. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to London, but not to, I'm going to watch some qualies and going to the George Armani event with IMG. And some ASICs, actually our, our podcast po- partners, ASICs have an event over there. So there's, two, there's actually two events, hoping to meet more of their players and hopefully Novak is at one of them as well. And uh, it kind of reminds me of a funny story when I was saying what you changed when Wimbledon changed its colours. In December, we were at an event they had in the Puinto Romano Club in Marbella. I'm not sure if you know it, but it's famously green and green with clay courts, hard court, and they, I don't know how they did it, but they convinced the, the club, this old club, to change it all blue into their colours. And it was it was so weird going over there and seeing the blue and it's normally the green. And yeah, it's kind of, it's crazy. Now it's back green again. It didn't last too long, but it's it's crazy the way colours can totally change the feel of a court and the feel of a place. But that, again, then you get used to it quickly. Yeah, yeah it's well, normal. It takes, it takes a day or two and then uh, before you know it, it's it's just like normal. Um, yeah. This ability, you know, human beings have this ability of adapting. Quickly, yeah. It is great, but uh, at first it strikes you. Yeah. But one, like me, you know, I'm not going to Wimbledon this year. So for me, it's uh, I did 30 consecutive Wimbledon. So it's wow. the first time. Is this in, the first one? Yeah, it's the first one that I'm not going to in um, since I think my first Wimbledon was 92. So since 92, I mean, the only one I didn't go to was the one with the one during the pandemic. The one that was cancelled, but um, I've been to all of them. So um, it is also a little bit, it's going to be a little bit strange for me not to be there. So 30 years ago was 1993. Yeah. 92 was my first no, one. Oh, 92. So was that like a Michael year or who won in 92? I don't know, but you're not 
uh, you're certainly not far off, but um, I couldn't I couldn't tell for sure. But um, you're the journalist, not me. Yeah, I'm not a journalist. I'm just running Instagram account in the podcast. That's all I do. Uh, never did, not a journalist. But how many matches in total, Carlos, have you umpired in, in this 30-year career? No, quite, no, no idea. But, um, you know, some people are, are very precise at keeping track of things and collecting things. And uh, I'm not at all like that. Uh, the only thing I collect, um, and um, it's really the only thing I, I, I have collected over, over this uh, the last thirty five years as an official, is the um, the accreditations. So I have a big um, basket full of accreditations. That's the only thing I have from from the tournaments, and I don't have any numbers of um, of number of matches. And but I would say over five thousand, um, uh, about an average of. Maybe 150 a year for 35, between 150 and 200 a year for 35, 30 over years. Yeah, that's six, seven. That's six, seven thousand. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of matches. And so you, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to count those badges. That's how you find out. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, in the last, the last 15 years, I did fewer matches than I used to. And like the players, when you start playing, you play a lot of events and. Uh, you need to get a lot of um, practice and experience, and it's the same with us. So um, my first 10, 15 years, I was doing a lot more matches than I was doing in the last 10, 15 years. And did officiating at these six, 7,000 matches make you a, a, a better tennis player? What did you learn from watching these guys on court? Well, it made me maybe better, you know, understand the game better for sure, and... Um, uh, and um, understand technique better as well but then you get i i get frustrated a lot when i'm because i then i want to play like them and uh and it's a different sport you know these people all at all levels um all uh, at all at least all international levels they're all um super talented it doesn't matter where whether you're doing a a men's 15 you know itf world tennis tour men's 15 tournament or a grand slam you know they're all super talented people and uh it's tennis is a is a really um really demanding sport and uh and all these people that play internationally are very good at, at tennis and uh, i'm super um uh, uh impressed each time i i i see how, how well they play especially when i compare it to how well i play me and i played all my life but um so yes it's uh uh, I learned, but I yeah, but uh, not at least not enough. And do you think, let's say, a top fifty WTA ATP player said, "Carlos, I'm down a coach. I need a coach. You have all this experience. Do you think you could offer them value?" Uh, not really. No, no. Sometimes, um, sometimes I think, yeah, I, I know a little bit about tennis, and I know where they're going to serve. And sometimes I'm watching a match, and I. I say to, to him, I'm watching it with somebody and I say, look, they're going to serve down the middle. Uh, this is what they're going to do. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and most times I get it right. But, um, but then uh, I realized that no, I, you know, each to their own. And, uh, and now I could not be a coach. And um, I'm, I have a couple of players, you know, really top players at the moment. When they first started, I was told, um, I was told by, by colleagues, say, oh, this guy, you know, see how he's, he's only 17 now. He's going to be, he's going to be the next Pete Sampers. And yeah. uh, I looked at them, at them and I said, come on. And yeah, they are the next, uh, they were the next Pete Sampers or the next uh, Martina Navratilova. Or, That's crazy. So, uh, no, I, 
I don't think I could coach. Uh, I don't. I don't know enough. That's a hard one to call. I think a lot of great players, so great players who weren't the next Federer, who weren't the next Pete Sampras or Navratilova, they were told, you know, they're going to be the next one. There's always more than there actually is that are told. But just what I think about that, all your matches were viewed from the center of the court, you know, left, right, left, right. Mm-hmm. You know, do you ever watch matches from behind the court? Do you actually have a favorite place to watch a match from on the court? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I really like to watch the match behind the players, from behind the players. And um, actually, uh, at um, Roland Garros, I don't know if you, if you can, if you remember, but at Roland Garros, they, at the back, like the back wall, back fence of, uh, of the big courts, they make a, like a big hole for the TV camera and for the photographer. Yeah. And they're at court level. And I've watched, um, you cannot watch a five-hour match from there, but uh, I've, I've been there a few times for an hour and it's a really, really good view of the court. And you see sometimes when the players come all the way to the back, you know, their feet are a meter away from you. Yeah. And it's, it's a really good view as well. But from my preferred view is from behind the players. That's mine as well. Getting to your point there, getting to your court, is that the one that you're a bit underground and your eye is on court, actually on court level? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, when, when you're there, you're standing and the court is, the court is here. I'm going to do video of this on Instagram because I was lucky last year. I, w- I was the middle, sa- sorry, it was the first Saturday and you'd already let all the crowds in. And for some reason I was behind the court. I ended up in there and Rafa was playing and I was just amazing. Like the cr- the crowds are quite noisy on the Saturday and Rafa's just there. I saw a few points, him coming right back, left, right. And the sun, the view was amazing. Really, you're right. That's a, I was, I've been lucky to be in there. It's a very special place. Yeah, it's super impressive. But we're not allowed there. As you were saying before, uh, where we are allowed yeah. and where we're, that's a place for, for media. And uh, well, we also have a few ball kits there in case uh, a ball goes in and uh, so we, we can get it out. But um, the officials, I'm usually not allowed there. So I was, I was defending the rules a little bit the times, um, the times when I was there. And, apart, and also on your credations, is there anything else you like to pick up over the, over the 30 plus years? Any other special objects you've picked up that are special to you? No, no not really. Uh, Sometimes you know when we do um, when we do a big final. Um, uh, actually, in some countries, each time you do a final, either they present you, the tournament presents you with something. Um, certainly, each time you do a Grand Slam final, um, you present it with something that is uh, that that means a lot to you. So uh, um, I, I've I've kept all of those, uh, and uh, but it, I, I don't display them or, or anything. But I I, I kept them and. Um, and I treasure uh, each one of them for sure. But um, but now I don't collect anything else. I'm not a collector. Um, I'm the opposite. I I like uh, the more space I have, then the and the least, uh, the fewer things I have, uh, the better. So no 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 collecting as far as I'm concerned. Well well, we've spent the past week moving house, and we collect a lot of crap. Is what yeah. I'm going to say. The amount of stuff you come across, and even similar, like even old tr- old trophies that mean I don't like little things, but just generally, uh, from my last move to this move with two kids, and you know, it's it's just been a big move, and you're you're always trying to cut out crap every time you buy something. You're trying to say in your head, do I actually really need this? How long is going to last? And is it just going to come dead weight? So, uh, 
you definitely have the right attitude. Mm. I try. I mean, it's uh, easier said than done, but um, but I, yeah, I try as much as I as I can. But also, you know, you were talking about the kids, and uh, and then he, he, you're not alone. So not everybody's like you. Um, my my wife likes to collect things more than me. Um, let's put it this way. So it's a it's a balance. We need to find uh, find a balance, a family balance. But um, if it was up to me, uh, we would just have space. Yeah. Um, not on the tables, nothing, nothing anywhere. Uh, just clear. And tell me, so at these tournaments, let's say you're not going to be at Wimbledon next week, but from the last times you were there or the other slams or any other tournament, do you interact with the players at all during the week? Like what happens after you officiate a match? So do you walk in? Do you actually ever talk to the players and give them advice on what they could have done better? They give you advice on what you could have done better. Is there that sort of communication after a match? It depends a lot on the players, on the events. You know, we 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 spoke up. We we mentioned the slams a few times during during this conversation, and they're very big. So the chances of meeting a player after a match are much smaller. And again, uh, we don't really go into their spaces um, uh, at a regular WTA or ATP event during the year. We often share the same restaurant. Uh, so and and transportation and uh, and uh, so we meet a lot more than at the, at the slams where where for instance uh, the officials have their own restaurant so we don't we certainly don't yeah. meet during during meals so uh, and then it depends on 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 the person so some people like to to talk about the matches and the situations or talk about life in general and some other people are more discreet or more or take especially if a match doesn't go well. Some people take longer to, to come to terms with it and to, to move on, and, uh, and we try and, um, and adapt to each, each type of player and personality. But um, often we, we discuss um, especially matches, situations that um, were not well handled or that the player did not agree with the decision and uh, we try and um, and discuss these situations. Sometimes we do it. We usually don't. Well, we never do it on court. Uh, we have kind of a, of a rule uh, that uh, we try as much as we can to avoid discussing a situation when the match is over. As soon as the match is over, uh, sometimes, if especially if the match doesn't doesn't end well, the player wants to talk about the situation that happened before. And we really try and, uh, and avoid that uh, to protect the players and to protect ourselves as well. Um, and so, but we are really open to talking about the situations afterwards. And then it depends on the player. It depends on the official as well. Often often a good time is a couple of hours uh, afterwards um, when the players have done you know, their, their, uh, their uh, recovery work and, uh, and, press and everything um uh so uh, it's a good it's the better time for them and it's also the better time for us when we've relaxed and uh, and had a chance to think uh things over and to uh and to calm down a little bit because we we also get a little bit excited sometimes so we, <laughs> yeah. we also need to uh, calm down a little bit you go into the recovery room exactly uh, <laughs> And uh, quick, I I met you for the first time last year at the IMG Future Stars event and this year. And w- what's it like officiating at such a great under-12 event? 
And that's a fantastic event. And uh, the IMGist and uh, the Tatoi Club started it last year. Um, we were, you know, both of us were privileged to be there last year and this year. It's it's a fantastic event. It's uh, it's like a like a grand slam for under twelve kids. And um, and uh, we were saying before about um, uh, looking at the play and thinking, you know, are they going to be good? Are they going to be the next? Um, uh, the next Boris Becker or uh, or uh, or Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. <laughs> yeah, true. Closer that, and uh, and uh, we see a lot of them there, and that we think, wow, you know, at twelve, they're so under twelve, even uh, they they're so good. Um, uh, yeah, it is it is a great event, and I really like to to do it, and um, uh, I usually do another junior event uh, each year for the last five six years, and um, it's the um, the uh, what's it called the uh, Davis Cup and Eugene King Cup um, uh, Junior Finals. There's a slightly different name, but it's uh, it's the finals of um, under uh, 16, and that's also a fantastic event. And it's great to see the players um, to get to know them before they become um, top Super players. Stars. And so um, uh, it's it's really interesting from. And the perspective of, of an official to meet and work with these players before they they become professional players. Yeah, and how do you? I I noticed a few times on the court taking some videos, and the match was getting heated, and you would happen to be there. Is how do you know? Like, do you just look at a matchup? How do you know it's going to get heated? You seem to be there right on cue. You know, is is that just an, a skill you learned over the years? Yeah, I, I think again we we, we mentioned the experience before. I think with experience, you you've, you're not always right, but you you sense some things, uh, uh, and then you, you just make sure that you're you're nearby if um, if something really happens. But uh, but many times you you look at at the match. Uh, sometimes even a match that was you had you had the same matchup a week or two earlier, and it didn't go well, and. Uh, and you think, oh, I, you know, this match, everything could happen during this match, and then nothing happens. Sometimes you look at uh, at, uh, at um, uh, a match, and you think, wow, uh, who is like from an official perspective, who is umpiring that match? You know, uh, yeah. so that person is going to, really going to be tested, and then again, nothing happens. And sometimes it's the opposite. You look at the match, and two players that usually. Um, have no issues with the officials or with other players, and then everything happens during during that match. So it's really, um, uh, but the chances of something happening at certain matches or with certain players are much higher. Yes. Uh, and then it's, you need to look at what is what is at stake uh, with these junior tournaments. Um, uh, the parents and especially the parents, you know, they, they play a big role as well, and. Uh, and for a match that could potentially be a match with problems, the parents, uh, you know, you, you think a lot of, about who the parents are and, and how they behave and, uh, and how to deal with the parents as well. And at pro level, that, that is not usually not the case. Uh, so that was, yeah, that's part of the equation as well to be, to try and be there, as, as you said, you know, even before, even before things happen and I, no, and I was there. Yeah, it happened. I think I was maybe a little bit lucky as well. Huh? Oh, it's 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 the it was 
It was good to see. It was just so funny. Like you just happened to be there as now, not a lot kicked off. I did, I did a piece about just after the event on 14 things I learned from being at the event. And I think two of the points were how well behaved the players were and the, the, the parents were warned to behave themselves. Uh, Max told them, look, you better be on your best behavior. And they were, I think the parents were really good compared to some other junior tournaments I've seen where the parents can, you know, get involved during and after and before the matches. So I thought the parents, uh, I'll back up. They were actually mo- most were well behaved, and the players were great as well. Yeah, for for IMG and then for the club for Tatai Club, it is very important that um, that the players uh, behave well, that they show sportsmanship, that they play their best regardless of the score, that they play loose. Uh, and uh, as you said, Max, uh, he, he's uh, he gave a couple of speeches, and he he mentioned that uh, he, he said to the players, "Look, we don't care who wins. We just want to see you play your best tennis." And we also want you, your parents, and your coaches to to show uh, the best uh, sportsmanship. So that is that is very important. And uh, and I think in the last so these these first two editions of the tournament, we I think we really managed that part well. There were a couple of well, as always, you know, it's a lot of ma- we play a lot of matches there. So uh, so there are always a couple of matches that that go off track a little bit and um but uh the vast majority of matches uh, and players and coaches and parents behave really well yeah no i agree and i'm not sure if you can give your your thoughts on this if you're allowed to give your thoughts on this the handshake the uh, most recently more so in the women's game where a lot of players don't give handshakes they give handshakes do you think sport should just you know just stay away from the politics and you know the handshake should be part of the game should be respect to your opponent what thoughts can you give on the situation from an umpire's point of view i mean i it's not what i think or don't think because i think it's um it's complicated so you you know we talk about tennis and uh, i think you're mentioning the position of some of, or, or most, if not all, of the Ukrainian players uh, when they play Russian players and uh, Belarusian players. Uh, uh, ideally, yes, I wish at least I wish that it's sport and we just um, we just uh, we don't deal with any of the politics. But um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's very complex. You know, there are two countries that are at war and. Uh, and uh, you know, people, the players are role models, and people are fighting. Uh, they're at war and fighting and losing family members. And uh, and uh, if they you know if they see their role models shaking hands with um, with uh, players from other from other nations, I can I can understand that being a big problem. And uh, but it's really I'm not an expert in that, and I, I wish it was different. But I, I really don't have an opinion whether it should be like that. You know, everybody should shake hands or not. But a tennis match um, usually uh, ends with um, with the players shaking hands with with each other, and uh, and in most cases, most times, shaking hands with the official uh, with uh, with the champion. Uh, I wish it was like that. But uh, again, you know, I I really have no opinion whether. These players that are not shaking hands with your opponents, whether they're they're right or wrong, and maybe there's there's room for both. Yeah, it's it's actually really tough to fully understand unless you're from one of those, you know, unless you're from the Ukraine, where I can't imagine what they've gone through. 
And it's really hard, you know, it's, it's really hard to get those feelings when it's not mentioned in the news anymore, especially even if you don't listen to the news, you don't know really what's going on. And these players' lives have been turned upside down. But I still would like some sort of handshake, but it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's a hard one to, you know, it's a very complex situation. But I think uh, I like to look at the, the bright side of things and the, you know, the positive side of things. And I think these players, they, uh, I don't think we had any situations where the players on the court, when they were playing, they did not respect the opponent or, or that the politics got in the way of the match itself. Uh, and I think this this is really good that um, that the players, at least playing tennis, they 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 have so far managed to to stick with with tennis and not uh, not let the politics and the war um, uh, get involved in the the actually the actual match itself and make the umpire's job, you know, not not that much harder because you can have a battle on your hand then. Absolutely, yes, and that's again that would be. You know the, the officials have to make decisions, and uh, and and again, they, this is a very complex subject. And so, of course, it would be difficult to for an official to. Um, I mean, again, we just try and make things uh, as simple as you can, and by and by the rules and apply the rules. But um, but uh, it's a very complex uh, subject. Hopefully, over as soon as possible for. For you know, it would be best for everybody, and uh, I really wish that um, this war ends as soon as possible. Yes, yeah, it, it's prolonged, definitely. Looking back at your career, what's your favorite event? If tomorrow you could, you get called Carlos, you can umpire one more final. You get to choose. What would you choose? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, so you know, so many things get going to the equation um the the event where i i had the most success as, as an umpire and where which is also the event where i umpired my, my first um, men's singles final um at the slam was the australian open so i did I actually did four men's singles finals there um and uh, that's also where i felt i umpired at my best i saw the ball the best and uh, and um Umpiring well has a lot to do with seeing the ball well and how, how you feel you're seeing the ball. That gives you confidence, at least my style of officiating. It, it, it really gave me confidence to then apply everything that I, that I worked on and that I, that I, um, that I thought I knew um, uh, as a tennis official. But uh, seeing the ball well is really key. And uh, I felt that of, out of the... Big, big events. That was the event where I saw the ball the best Australian Open. So, uh, so that's, um, I would have said yes, um, uh, Australian Open. But then, but then when you look at, well, again, the, the Grand Slams, if, if I had one more match that I would, that I would do, uh, I would do a, a men's singles final at Wimbledon or, or, or another, uh, men's uh, singles Olympics final at Wimbledon. <laughs> oh, that well, that won't happen anytime soon. Now, so it, the, uh, the build up for that match um, was absolutely incredible. Why did you with Murray being in it, and it was crazy. I think so. There was so much expectation on on Mandy Murray as well to to uh, 
to win the Olympics and win the, the Olympics at home and uh, and playing playing Federer who had dominated um, uh, tennis grass court tennis for for many years uh, uh, and done so well at Wimbledon. Um, the build up for that match was I for me the the the, mo- the best that I that I uh, lived at least as you know as somehow being part of that match. And did you feel any pressure? Yes, a lot of pressure, but um, you, you learn to handle the pressure and enjoy it. Uh, so, uh, yes, you feel a lot of pressure as, as an official. You, as a, as a, as a champ, you're always um, a little bit on the on the um, on the tightrope, you call it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and many, there's always always a net, but some many times it feels like there is no net. Uh, so yes, it's a lot of pressure, but um, I um, I really, really. Uh, I mean, we 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 learn to enjoy the pressure, and also we uh, a lot of people uh, officials they say you know before you go to a match, people say oh I have a good one, I have a quick one, and uh, I often told people look I'm not a tennis official for a tennis umpire, you know I'm thousands of kilometers of kilometers away from my family and. Uh, uh, sometimes for three, four weeks in a row. Uh, I don't do this for easy matches. I do mm. this for because I love um, umpiring and I, I don't want to create problems, but I want to solve problems. I want to handle difficult situations and get the pleasure of at least sometimes um, handling them well and believe that I, I played uh, a positive role in, the, in, in that match. So for me, it's not about easy. It's about... Um, it's about Doing doing a good job under pressure and uh, and enjoying that pressure. And you mentioned being away from your family there. First of all, did you enjoy traveling for the thirty plus years? Uh, yes, very much. Um, you know, I was um, I was born in Africa, brought up in um, in Lisbon, Portugal, um, and as a kid, you know, uh, traveling was something that uh, traveling going to foreign countries. Uh, uh, speaking foreign languages uh, is something that became really appealing to me from a very young age. And uh, and when I started getting involved in tennis, before tennis, I, I was involved in football. I was a goalkeeper, but I was too little and I I, I gave up goalkeeping very, very early. Uh, and then when I started getting involved in tennis, I, I saw that door of uh, international tennis, uh, foreign countries and uh, and so um, that became really appealing, and with that, of course, traveling and um, and I've been to so so many countries. Uh, again, people, some people know how many countries exactly they've been to, and they they have a a map in their room or office yeah. in for each country. I don't, no, I don't do that. Um, no criticism of people who do it, but uh, I don't do that. So I. I don't know how many countries I've been to, but but I've been to many, many countries. I've been to, we were talking about Australia before. I think I've been to Australia about 40 times and, um, and to the USA as well, 40 overtimes. Uh, yeah. Not many people have done that. And, uh, uh, and I, I certainly enjoyed and still enjoy uh, traveling a lot. Um, and especially uh, traveling as a champ, I where you it's very intense when you are on court uh it's also intense when you because we we coach and evaluate a lot of officials um so we also spend a lot of time doing that but when 
but we also have quite a lot of time uh, off-site. Uh, sometimes if you, your first match of that day is third, it means that you you can go in a little bit later, so you can you can take your time in the morning. Uh, I like exercising, running, cycling now for the last well, couple of years. So it means that you can do that a uh, little bit as well. Or go, go sightseeing. As now, I, 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 all I have left now in officiating is uh, is refereeing and supervising and um, and that stuff because you basically you and the physios. Yeah, it's a grind. Wants to arrive and the last ones to leave every day, and it's the tournament. If it's uh, a regular tournament, it's for nine days. You know, nine days, two days of qualifying, seven days of main draw, and uh, one day even one day before. You're the first one to arrive, last one to leave. So, um, uh, but I, you know, I still enjoy the traveling quite a lot. Yes, uh, and and but especially when I can do a little bit more than just the tennis. Yeah, you definitely you haven't retired. You only you've gone up another level with all with the work. I I saw much work you did at like a June. I know it was a prestigious junior event, but I said you were first that you were living on site first there in the morning and last leave at night time. And you're in. I know I talked about you being on court the odd time but you're in a dark room downstairs planning planning and so it's not all what it looks like no absolutely and as a as a referee your your role is very different as a referee and uh, part of that role is to make sure that that um all the courts are in uh, are are good for instance so and at that event we at some events this other itf event i was telling you about we play on 16 courts so uh Almost every morning, if not every morning, I go around all the courts, for instance, just to make sure that each and every court uh, is uh, has all that it, that 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 it needs. You know, everything is there, and and also that there is nothing on the court that shouldn't be there uh, to avoid. You you'd be surprised, and sometimes you you go to a court, and you, especially after a practice session, if you have a practice session, and then five minutes later the players walk on court for the match, and that sometimes happens. You have chairs that shouldn't be there and all things that could be really a uh, safety hazard for the players. And um, as a kid, uh, um, uh, when I was growing up, the um, at that at the time, the best Portuguese player had a big accident because of something that should not be, should not have been on the court. And that made me even more aware of it. So that's some other thing that I do, you know, just go around, you know, do we have everything that we need? Is there something there on the court that we don't need and could be dangerous? Uh, we play at this event um, in uh, that you mentioned the um, the uh, IMG Future Stars. We play on clay, so of course, when you say clay, you know we need to the nets to um, to do the court after yeah. each set usually, uh, and the brooms and everything. Sometimes these things are all over the place, and, uh, and especially when the courts are a little bit narrow narrower, uh, you know they really need to be in that least dangerous place for the players as possible. So that is also part of the the referee work. When the weather is a little bit, um, uh, when it there's a chance of rain or when it, it is raining, then then as well, the referee has to has to do a lot of work to, to make sure that all the courts are playable and to get there early and uh, get the grounds people to work on the courts as soon as possible. And then, of course, you do the you know the long hours are also to do with the order of play and uh, do all the draws and everything. But it it is long hours as a as a, as a referee longer longer than as a, as a champion player for sure. 
Yeah, it is. And you mentioned a lot of you mentioned a lot of travel there. You must get some good air miles. You must get some nice first class upgrades. Yeah. Uh, first class upgrades, not so many, but um, but yeah, I, I used to collect a lot of, um, especially uh, when I was um, uh, in the ITF Grand Slam team. Uh, I belonged to that to that team for seventeen years and uh, doing all four Grand Slams and uh, and uh, and. Doing a lot of a lot of, a lot of other events, I yeah, I was accumulating a lot of um, air miles and uh, hotel points as well. Uh, uh, so, um, so you could bring your wife on a nice holiday then. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> not long ago, actually, we we were uh, on a holiday still with um, with my my hotel points, uh, um, and uh, that's that, that's quite nice. That, that's a nice side of um, of traveling as well. You know, accumulating these points that. Um, Will then allow you to stay at places that um, you would, uh, if you were paying for them, then you would probably think twice, three times yeah. before you before you 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 do that. Yeah. Uh, last year, I got I, don't, I had some air miles. I don't travel that much. We had some air miles, and I think it was Emirates says you can get U.S. Open tickets. And I just it was the first round, so I got first round for the I can't remember the Monday evening, and I was like, I'm going to give it away. And so I gave it, I sent out an email, the email list, who's in New York, who wants to go to US Open round one. But it turns out it was the night that Serena's first round match at the US Open. So tickets were absolutely, you couldn't get tickets in New York for people going crazy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I gave it to somebody from, I think, Connecticut at the time. And they were absolutely delighted they got to see Serena Williams in like the hottest ticket in New York. So I was like, I didn't know how good it was at the time. But yeah, anything free. It's kind of free. It's not really free because you've paid for it in some way. Is yeah. nice. Tell me, you so there's two types of umpires. I see. I've my my locker room friend is Fergus Murphy, who yeah. I see when he's back in Dublin the odd time. He never tells me any stories. He's the, but he he works for uh, the ATP tour directly. And yeah. I asked him before in the past, Fergus, can I get you on the podcast? And he says no, we can't give interviews. So from that day, from that day a few years ago I was taught I could never interview an umpire and then even last year I never mentioned to you until this year but can you explain differences between an ATP tour umpire and as far as I know you weren't employed by the ATP tour no um we have you know Fisher, the tennis is, is a little bit complicated with uh, with all the different governing bodies you know we you have you have the ATP uh, you have the ITF the the grand slams as a group, um, the Grand Slam tournaments, uh, they are also a governing body. You have the WTA and, and some, like you mentioned, Fergus. Fergus is employed by the ATP. And um, for the channel players, the ATP is actually the only uh, governing body that um, employs channel players um, uh, full-time as, as, as employees. Um, okay. Then you have the the group, the WTA. They also have their group, but they are independent contractors, the chair umpires. And the, the group I belong to, uh, ITF slash Grand Slam, um, we were employed as uh, independent contractors. And um, okay. the ATP, they have a very strict rule about uh, interviews, and um, and uh, so their their officials. Uh, I think sometimes the supervisors. Um, give interviews sometimes but not not very often and the umpire certainly in the last i would say 10 15 years they have not been allowed to um to give interviews they used to 
there was one one occasion a few years ago when things really uh, did not work. Uh, there was an interview that went really, really badly, and then they stopped uh, allowing their chairmans to give interviews. And with the other the other groups, um, if we are at um, at an event, we need to get approval uh, to give an interview, and so the event approves it or not, or like if it's at let's say we mentioned Wimbledon before, if it's at Wimbledon, then the 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 press officer goes to the to the uh, chief umpire and then um, gets and then we get approval or not. If it's at the regular WTA or ATP event, then the supervisor okay. uh, any WTA or the ATP supervisor will approve the the interview or not. But um, again, at ATP events they don't approve them for the chair umpires. Uh, the other events it depends. And when mm-hmm. we like now, I'm not working this week. So and as I'm as I'm an, an independent contractor, then I I do what I want basically. For as long as I as I uh, follow the, the the code of conduct for officials. So if you did now, tell me a crazy story. You shouldn't tell me who would come down hard on you. Uh, a few. I can think of a few people that um, if I do that, it really it will happen. So I I you know we really on um, uh, really really need to be aware of this code of conduct for officials all the time. And um, so if I say something I shouldn't say, people will. Um, will talk to me about it and uh, and then I could be penalized for um, that as a system there's what what we call the um, the joint certification program is a system uh, that uh, monitors all of this and many more things uh, it's also also in charge of the um, education of the officials at uh, international level so that's all the governing bodies are part of okay. this well, this group so they also monitor the code of conduct for officials and um, and make decisions. There's hearings and the uh, and decisions. Nice, yeah. So you, yeah, you, you have to respect that. Right, strictly followed. Yes, strictly followed. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's some rogue. There must be a rogue one out there I can get somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so so how we end this with? Do you have some advice for you know you you say you wouldn't be a coach, but you've definitely picked up. You know, after six, let's say five to seven thousand matches, you've definitely picked up a wealth of knowledge that not many other people have. And what what advice would you have for junior tennis players out there who want to be professional based on what you've seen in your career, seeing the best players in the world at their best? Mm. I mean, I, as I said before, you know, I can talk. I, I could answer this question for 20 minutes, uh, but I'll try and keep it short. Um, uh, Maybe a couple of things, you know, hard work for sure, and um, that is something you remember at um, IMG Future Stars this year. Uh, the two players that played the exhibition, uh, they were interviewed, and that's that's what they kept saying: hard work. You know, it doesn't matter how talented you are if you don't work hard, you don't make it. So hard work for me is a, is is key. And then because uh, you know, a lot of people they either can or they will learn. They work hard to um, to uh, hit a good forehand and and and, and the big uh, and a good backhand. But um, so you need to work really, really hard to do be even better than everybody else. Uh, and uh, and then one thing that I find really key uh, for becoming a, um, a good uh, top tennis player is to play loose. Uh, and again, that's what Max um, uh, from ING was saying 
during these pitches, you know, just play your best tennis, play loose, don't care about the result. Again, easier said than done, but yes. um, when you can do that, uh, you look at these top players, uh, women and men, and, and they, and they, some of them, they play so loose, and the, the looser they play, the better they play. Uh, hit the ball very hard, but it's everything is so loose, and I think this is really key to become a top player to to play loose. And of course, for me, I make a big connection between playing loose and not being afraid of losing. Because why why do you not play loose? Because you're afraid of losing. And I think in tennis, um, uh, one of my sons played a little bit of uh, of table tennis, and you go out for a table tennis tournament and you play in one afternoon you play five six matches even more and in tennis sometimes you travel for five hours with your parents and everything and the dog and uh, and uh, and then you go there and you play someone really good you play we play two sets and uh, one in love and uh, and you, and you're done and so i think tennis is a little bit it's a little bit difficult to learn uh, to lose and not to be afraid of losing because I think you don't play as yeah. in comparing it to table tennis. You play so many matches that you get used to losing and uh, you know that if you lose this one, then you're going to, you're going to play another three or four matches that afternoon. It, it's a scale. Yeah, and in tennis, I, you know, this is something that I think you need to learn as a kid and, uh, and uh, it's a little bit more difficult in tennis and, the, and I see a big difference between the players that play, even the top players that play really loose when it really matters and the ones that don't. And did you build up a skill when you're sitting in your chair, when you saw two players come out there and you could just look at a player and say they're tight? For sure, yes. Um, certainly, uh, even at, um, at the coin toss, when they come to the coin toss, you know straight away if they're, if they're relaxed or, or if, if they're not and uh, if, they're, if they're tight. Um, and... Uh, Sometimes it's the matchup. Sometimes it's uh, it's um, the, the what is at stake, you know, because it's a big event, a big final, a big semifinal, whatever. Uh, big chance. Sometimes it's that is the match that will qualify you to the yeah. to the WTA or ATP finals. Sometimes that. So yes, you can see it, and many times at the coin toss, and then certainly at big stages of the matches. Sure. You know, people say a lot, you know, why didn't the umpire talk to the player? You know, it's so easy to talk to the player. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, players are really receptive for, for uh, words from the umpire and some other times they're not. So that is also part of the, of the equation. And when you look at them and see, see how they are, are they relax, more or less relaxed, or they're tense and, uh, and, and not receptive. Yeah, it, it, it's great. It's definitely tough. I think we all have good intentions. Uh, be loose. Don't be afraid to lose. But once you step onto the court, no matter what level, no matter if it's like under 10s, amateurs, college, pros, or the, the, the best in the world, they all, the moment gets you and you tend to go back into your old ways when it gets tight, when it gets... So, uh, yeah, it's about training yourself to eventually over, you know, Loose becomes the norm, or yeah, I I haven't been there. I'm tight, so uh, that's all I'm going to say. But uh, Carlos, thank you very much for your time, your experience. I uh, hope to see you again. The time went by quickly. 
It did. No, I, I think we could do another five hours here if I let you, but uh, <laughs> to, I hope to see you again in Greece next year. Uh, who knows beforehand? But uh, yeah, thank you very much. Hopefully. Uh, in Greece, I, yeah, I, I think I will be there. All going well, I will be there. I hope you be there too. And uh, maybe we'll meet before. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Carlos. Next week, I'll be chatting to the fitness trainer, Sasha Zarev, Dalibor Sirola. Dalibor has worked with greats such as Ivan Lubacic, Seppi, Milos Raonic, Sinner, Courage, Sharpova. He worked alongside Ricardo Piatti for many years and he still runs a strength and condition at the Piatti Tennis Centre. He's so knowledgeable, answers all my questions. He covers many areas of training. You're going to love it. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye.